Father, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that you would let me, your humble servant, exalt Christ. Please, God, I pray that every eye would see, that every ear would hear, that we would all be able to behold the unsearchable riches in Christ Jesus. And we pray this for the glory of his name. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, we will be continuing our study in the book of Genesis today. We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 13. If you got your Bible from out in the foyer, it's page 9. We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 13 today. Most of us have a lot of stuff. Most of us have more stuff than we know what to do with. That is just kind of part of American culture. We have a lot of stuff. And here's the thing. Not only do you have a lot of stuff, but as you continue to live, you are going to acquire more stuff. The average person makes plans to possess stuff, to possess things, a car or a wardrobe or a computer or, or a house. And those are just for starters. That's just the foundation. But study after study has shown that people very easily become compulsive or, or impulsive buyers, consumers. And that's because we make our decisions not based on logic and, and reason, but instead we tend to throw those things out the window, and that's what makes us compulsive and, and impulsive buyers. And instead, we, we tend to acquire things. We tend to buy things based on our feelings and based on our emotions and based on our cravings in the moment. So I want to start today by asking you, what does your process or your, your system for making important decisions look like. In our culture, we say that consumer is king, and we live by that. We, we have been, that, that has been so deeply ingrained in us. We, we customize absolutely everything as a result. It's reflected in the fact that we customize our computers, our cars, our homes, our clothes. We, we customize so many aspects of our lives. New York Times columnist David Brooks Last year, he wrote an article called The Choice Explosion, and he, note, he noted this in this article. He said, quote, Americans now have more choices over more things than any other culture in human history. And he goes on to say, quote, it's becoming incredibly important to learn to decide well, to develop the techniques of self-distancing to counteract the flaws in our own mental machinery, end quote. Now, what are these flaws in our mental machinery that he's talking about? He's talking about our emotions. He's talking about the fact that we, we tend to make spur-of-the-moment decisions that can impact our lives for a long time. And so I ask you again, what does your decision-making process look like? Because the truth is that while many of the decisions that you make on a day-to-day -day basis don't necessarily affect your lives long-term, many of them do. Many of them do, whether you realize it or not. Many of the, the daily, even the mundane choices that we make are often far more significant than we realize. Think of the tragedies that occur when people make bad decisions, just, just one bad decision. You think of the, the girl who's driving her car on the freeway, and she looks away from the road for just one second to check a text message. And she gets in an accident, and she's paralyzed from the neck down for life. Why? A spur-of-the-moment decision to take her eyes off the road. You think of the, boy who, who, uh, the teenage boy who gets in, the, in a car with a bunch of friends, and they've been drinking or getting high, and they crash, and they all die. Why? Just one Foolish decision. You think of a, of a husband, maybe, who, who, let's just give him the benefit of the doubt, he looks at pornography just one time, and his wife happens to catch him. And so for the next 10 years, she struggles with self-esteem. She struggles with feeling attractive to him. She struggles with trusting him. Why? Because of one 
bad decision. One bad decision can impact your lives for years or it can impact our lives for the rest of our lives. Every one of us is prone to do this. Every one of us is prone to make bad decisions in the moment that can affect us for life. So the question is maybe, how do we guard ourselves against that? How do we protect ourselves against making bad decisions? And I would say that because we have a sin nature, we can't entirely protect ourselves, but we can make steps in that direction. The story of Lot is what we're going to be looking at today. That's Abram's nephew. The story of Lot teaches us some critically, critically important lessons about making wise decisions. So our text today is found in Genesis chapter 13. We're going to be looking at uh, verses 5 to 18. And the principle, the overarching principle that we're going to see in our text today is that our decisions are shaped by our priorities and our desires. And so therefore, we must daily examine our hierarchy of priorities. So we start with verses 5 to 7, but actually let's, let's start at verse 1 just so we can establish some context here. If you remember, Abram's been down to Egypt and he's, he's come back, and so this is what we read. So, so Abram went up from Egypt, starting in verse 13, chapter 13, verse 1. Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. That's where we left off, verse 5. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. It would be good for us to start out by remembering a couple principles that we've already learned in our study of Genesis, in the study of of Abram's life. And the first one that I want to bring your attention to is the fact that the the one we learned in our last lesson on Genesis, and that is that after a moment of triumph, there is often a moment of temptation. After a moment of triumph, there's often a moment of temptation. And we have seen this in Abram's life. If you think about his, his story thus far, God appeared to Abram in Ur of the Chaldeans, and he called him to the land of Canaan. And Abram, if you're looking at his life, you've got to consider this to be a high point in his life. This is a triumphant moment in his life. God has appeared to him. God has called him. And this is all amazing stuff, but it's immediately followed by temptation. Specifically, the temptation to not obey God. At least not perfectly. And we know that he didn't obey God perfectly. We know that to an extent he failed this test because he was supposed to leave his father's house. He was supposed to leave his relatives. He was supposed to leave his country. And he got one out of the three right. He, he didn't leave his, his family. He, he brought his father along with him. And he brought Lot along with him. His father... Uh, apparently couldn't make the journey, and so they settled in the land of Haran for who knows how long. Uh, but it was a loss of time for Abram. So he, he failed this, this test, right? He failed, this, he, he, he failed a temptation here. He didn't obey perfectly, but he did obey imperfectly. He did obey imperfectly. He completed the 800-mile journey from Ur of the Chaldeans to the land of Canaan. And, and so again, this would be a high point. He, he enters the land of Canaan. He goes before the people of the land. And right in their presence, he builds an altar to the Lord. He worships them right in front of these people who don't know God, don't seek God, don't want to know God. And he's worshiping them. And God appears to him and says, Abram, I'm going to give this whole land to your offspring. And so he goes up to the, to the mountains between Bethel and Ai and builds another altar, and he calls upon the name of the Lord, and, and there you go again. There's that high point in his life. There's the triumphant moment in his life, followed immediately by temptation. There's a severe famine in the land. And Abram, again, fails. 
he tries to take matters into his own hands. He goes down to Egypt, where they lie to Pharaoh, where he and his wife lie to Pharaoh about who she is and what their relationship is, rather than trusting in God or seeking God's will. So the first principle that we need to remember today is that after a moment of triumph, there is often a moment of temptation. Another principle that we've learned from the life of Abram is that it is to our benefit to separate from worldly influences. It is to our benefit to separate from worldly influences that that maybe we had from before we started walking with the Lord and that worldly desires and worldly influences that we hold on to from before our walk with God will eventually cause pain and or problems. So these are two principles that we're going to see come together in in, in this uh, passage today. The good news is that while Abram failed, both of these tests, like us, he was a work in progress at this point. He left the promised land. He goes down to Egypt. But he did repent. He, he saw the error of his ways. He repented. He, he came back to where he started and he called upon the name of the Lord. And that's where we left off. That was verse 4. That's where we left off. But do you see what that is? He's called upon the name of the Lord again. He's repented and called upon the name of the Lord. What is that? It's a moment of triumph. And so we shouldn't be too surprised when we see that what comes next is a moment of temptation. And what we see here is that two acts of Abram's disobedience kind of come together here. They kind of converge here as his nephew... Uh, who Lot, who's not even supposed to be there, uh, becomes a, a problem because he's got a lot of possessions, and, and Abram has a lot of possessions, and uh, and and all the the possessions that he has. So his disobedience in terms of having his nephew there, and his disobedience in terms of having possessions. And you say, well, how's that disobedience to have possessions? Well, where did he get the possessions? He got them down in Egypt. So these. Possessions are kind of the fruit of his disobedience in a sense. And it's these things that create problems. But we learn that not only did did Abram get rich down in, in Egypt, but Lot got rich down in Egypt too. Pharaoh treated Abram well, but he apparently treated Lot well as well. And so what you have now is something that looks like a scene out of, out of an old Western movie, if you've ever seen an old Western movie, where, where two, two cowboys are having kind of a standoff, and one of them says, this town ain't big enough for the two of us. This land isn't big enough for Abram and Lot, because they've got so many things. The increase of wealth. The increase of, of, of flocks and herds and, and worldly fortune creates an interrelational strife between Abram and his nephew. And so this creates the temptation that Abram is facing now. One of the questions that, that we have to ask is, how is he going to handle this conflict with Lot? But more importantly than that, is he going to try to take things into his own hands again? Because Abram was very inclined to do that, as we'll see as we continue to study his life. How much does he really trust God's promises? And you see the irony here. The irony here is rich. If they weren't so wealthy, if they didn't have so many worldly possessions, there wouldn't be strife. There wouldn't be conflict. How much disharmony? How much conflict? How much strife? How much pain has been caused, has been driven by the love of stuff? The love of material wealth? How many families have been inseparably or in, 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 uh, in irreparably broken over family members going to war with each other, siblings going to war with each other over an inheritance? How many people who once loved each other saw the hand of kindness turn into a fist once money came between them? And that can be a husband and wife. That can be between best friends. That can be between siblings. That can be between whatever. How many times has money broken a friendship or a relationship? 
And where did we ever get the idea that accumulating wealth will make us happy? Where did we ever get the idea that money will be the solution to all of our problems and all of our frustrations and all the things that cause us to worry? Where did we ever get this idea that money will fix our problems? Because the truth is that some of the most unhappy, some of the most miserable people on the face of the earth are those who had more wealth than they know what to do with. And this is coming from a guy who used to deal table games in Las Vegas. Believe me, there's no correlation between happiness and money. In fact, we see this this principle clearly laid out for us in Proverbs chapter 23, verses 4 to 5. Solomon writes this, records this. He says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. And of course, the irony of that statement is that Solomon is a perfect example of somebody who tried and tried and tried to acquire as much wealth, as many possessions, as much power, as many wives as he possibly could. And yet, when you read the book of Ecclesiastes, which scholars and I think that was probably his his final book, the last book that he wrote, you, you get the idea when you read Ecclesiastes that Solomon is very wise, but he's also very somber. He's also very somber. Why is he so somber? Where, where does that come from? He, he says throughout the book, the theme of the book is everything is worthless. Everything under the sun is vanity. Everything that you do is completely meaningless, except he comes around. The last couple verses of the book, the only things that are not worthless, the only things that are not meaningless are faith and obedience to God. That's it. That's it. Everything else, worthless. Everything else, vanity. Everything else is meaningless. Why? Because it's here today and it's gone tomorrow. Just like every single one of us. We're like a vapor in the wind. We're here today. We're gone tomorrow. The ride's over before it even feels like it started. Have you learned that lesson? Have you learned that the things that we live for other than faith and obedience in God, we can't hold on to? They're ultimately, if you boil it down, it's, it's all basically vanity. It's, it's meaningless. It's worthless. Lot hadn't learned that lesson. At least, at least not yet. That's not where he is at this point. He hasn't learned that lesson yet. And the, the, the thing is, he had seen Abram's sin up close and, and personal. He, he had been right there to see, to witness with his own eyes, Abram's failures, Abram's acts of disobedience, Abram trying to take matters into his own hands, but he learned nothing from it. He saw Abram make these mistakes, and it apparently had no effect on his decision making. At least in this point, at this point in his life, Lot is greedy. Lot is completely selfish. Lot is looking out for number one, just like we're taught to. Just like Abram was. The last time he was tempted to lean on his own understanding. The last time he took matters into his own hands. He was looking out for number one. They're going down to Egypt. He knows Pharaoh's reputation apparently, and so he tells his wife, hey, just tell him you know, you're my, my sister. Don't tell him you're my wife. Who's he looking out for? He's not looking out for her best interests. He's not looking out for Pharaoh's best interests that brought plagues upon his house. Whose interests is he looking out for? He was looking out for number one. He was looking out for his own best interests. So he hasn't done too well. Abram hasn't done too well with his temptations up until this point. But how does he do this time? This time, we're going to see he passes this test with flying colors. And he's going to give us an example of how to respond to conflict that arises, that's driven by a desire for stuff, a desire for wealth, by covetousness. 
Genesis chapter 13 is actually the first time that we come across somebody who is incredibly wealthy like this. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that there's necessarily anything wrong with having wealth. It's not that wealth in and of itself or money or possessions or, or whatever is necessarily in and of itself a bad thing. No, it can be a good thing. It can be a blessing. But we have to understand that increased wealth creates an opportunity for increased, for at least the potential of increased evil or good, depending on what you do with it, depending on where it lies in your hierarchy of priorities. The question is, do you, do you possess your things or do your things possess you? In our prosperous culture, and we do live in a very, very prosperous culture, we need to understand that everything that we own, all of our possessions, all of our wealth, all that we own is ultimately God's. And it's only on loan to us. We are stewards of everything that we have. It is all ultimately God's. So the question is, how are you managing the things that God has entrusted to you? Because we need to understand that to whom much is given, much will be required. To whom much is given, much will be required. And living in a prosperous culture like we do, that means that a lot is required of us. The more wealth we have, we need to understand, the more wealth we have, the more possessions we have, the more accountability we have to God to use our material resources, whatever they may be, money or things or whatever, the more responsibility we have to use those things in a way that honors the Lord. Let's continue, verses 8 and 9. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right, or if you take the right hand, I will go to the left. In the parable of the soils, which I know I keep going back to, but there are so many great principles in there that are actually being played out in, this, uh, in the story of, of Abram. In the parable of the soils, Jesus warned that one of the things that stands in the way of true, legitimate, biblical faith is the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things. If you remember, that was the soil that had the weeds in it. It choked out the good plant so that it didn't bear fruit. As Jesus watched the, the rich young ruler walk away from him sad and dejected, why was he sad? Actually, Luke tells us it's because he loved his stuff. He, he loved and he desired his possessions more than he loved or desired God or to be reconciled to God. And as he was walking away, Jesus said how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The hope there is that he doesn't say that it's impossible. He just says it's difficult. Why? Because people who have a lot of stuff have an inclination in their hearts to worship that stuff, to make their stuff their gods, just like the rich young ruler. And Lot has a lot of stuff. Lot has a lot of stuff. He's got a lot to learn. He caused a lot of problems because he hadn't come to understand the danger, the dangerous blessing of having an abundance of wealth. Abram's response, on the other hand, is an example of how to handle a conflict that arises from greed or from covetousness. If you look at, at Abram's attitude here, if you look at his response, he's more than generous. He, he's completely selfless. His response exemplifies the, the type of self-sacrificial love that God has for His people. Do you remember Abram's response to the famine? 
He, he tried to take matters into his own hands. He tried to take control of things. But he's not doing it this time. He's made that mistake. It's, it's still fresh in his mind, apparently. He's not going to make that mistake this time. He's not going to take things into, into his own hands. This time when he's tempted, even though he's the older of the two, he doesn't lay claim to all the stuff. And as the older of the two, it would have been within his rights in their culture to say, hey, Lot, take a hike. Too bad it's all mine, including the stuff that you have. That would have been within his rights. Think about it. Abram is the older of the two. Abram is the leader of their expedition. Abram is the one to whom God appeared and whom God called to follow him. Abram is perfectly within his rights to just tell Lot, to get lost. Because every one of these positions, being the older, being the leader, being the one whom God called, every one of these things gives him the unmitigated right to claim all the land as his own. But instead, he demonstrates the type of selflessness, self-sacrificial love that we would be wise to observe and to emulate. Let's be clear about one thing, though. This strife or, or this, this dispute isn't really about land. It's not really about land. It's not really about wealth. It's not really about anything but the heart. It, it's a deeper issue than, than just the land. It's an issue in Lot's heart. We see that Lot's heart is completely self-absorbed. Lot's heart is focused only on Lot. He's focused on his wealth. He's focused on his stuff, his prosperity. He's focused on things that are to his benefit. He's, he's focused on things that are in his own best interests, even if it means taking from somebody else. And when a person's heart is overflowing with this type of selfishness, it, they are just a ticking time bomb, and it's, it's just a matter of time before in one way or another, it just blows up in their face. And so instead of taking matters into his own hands, instead of leaning on his own understanding, Abram puts the ball squarely back in Lot's court. He lets Lot make the decision. Lot, if you, if you, just, make, you just make your decision. If you go this way, I'll go that way. If you go that way, I'll go this way. Take what you want. That's brave. That's really brave. That's so brave, somebody might say, that's, that's just stupid. Why would you do that? Why would you put it all at risk? But what I want you to see here is that this is, this is what faith looks like. This is Abram putting his faith into actions. It's not just lip service. It's not just you know, a checklist that he's going down. No, he has real legitimate faith in God here because God has made this promise to him. This land is all going to belong to your offspring. And so Abram isn't worried about which part of the land Lot decides to take. He could take it all. And Abram could give away the whole land a thousand times and he still trusts that God will be faithful to his purposes and his promises. God has promised this land to Abram's offspring and Abram knows that God is faithful. And so he's able to hold his possessions with an open hand. Rather than clenching down with a fist and saying, no, this is mine. He can hold his possessions with an open hand because he knows that God is sovereign over the promises that he makes. He knows that God can turn the heart of a king whichever way he wills. And if he can do that to a king, he can do that to anyone. So he knows, Abram knows, that Lot can take the land. And it's not going to nullify God's faithfulness to his sovereign promises. Abram trusted God instead of leaning on his own understanding. This is what it looks like. This is what it means to live by faith and not by sight. Because from a human perspective, it sure would have made a lot more sense for him to have surveyed the land and said, well, this part of the land over here, this is the better part, so I'm going to take it. Lot, you're the younger. I'm the leader. You take, you take the desert. 
I'm going to take the lush land over here. But he's selfless. Lot's problem is that he is selfish. Abram diffuses this situation with selflessness. Lot is stirring up strife with Abram because Lot's heart is filled with strife within himself. And there's strife within himself because he has strife with God. He didn't care what God had promised to Abram. He had to know. He had to know what God had promised to Abram. I mean, he came along on this journey. He has to know that that God has led him there and that God has made these promises to him, but he doesn't care. He only cared about himself. He only cared about his own interests. Ultimately, this is covetousness. He's coveting. And the problem with coveting, the problem with desiring what doesn't rightfully belong to you is that it's selfish. It's completely self-centered. And that's not the type of attitude. That's not the type of mentality. That's not the type of existence that we are called to in Christ Jesus. We're called to a life of selflessness, not selfishness. But the biggest problem with coveting is not the selfishness. The biggest problem with coveting is that it involves being discontent with God. It involves being discontent with all the things that He's already given you. At the very root of covetousness is the attitude that you deserve more than God has blessed you with. More than He has provided you with. Coveting leads to sin. And coveting is sin. Coveting is like a gateway to sin. Whether that's coveting a bigger house, or or maybe even coveting a smaller house. It doesn't matter. You can covet a smaller house. You can covet a a nicer car, a newer car, a faster car. You can covet a a more attractive spouse. You can covet a, a, a more intelligent spouse. You can covet a more spontaneous spouse. You can covet a spouse who's who's more fun. You can covet money. You can covet food. You can covet prestige or power or influence or position. You can covet almost anything that doesn't rightfully belong to you. Coveting leads to sinful and downright bad decision-making. And it's dangerous and it's foolish to live for the sake of gaining worldly wealth or prosperity or possessions or, or anything else that you won't be able to take with you when you die. And that's not to say that worldly wealth is always bad remind you. It doesn't mean that wealth is necessarily a bad thing. But know this. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot serve both God and money. You will love one and you will hate the other. You will serve one and you will not serve the other. You will pay attention to one and you will neglect the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So who are you going to serve? Who are you going to serve? God or money? And money is just one example. Probably the most likely example for people. Whom will you serve? Choose. And choose wisely. Let's see how Lot chooses. Verses 10 to 13. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So Abram has put the decision back in Lot's hands. He's allowed Lot to make the decision to to pick which land he wants. And Lot lifts his eyes no further than Sodom and says, this looks perfect. This looks like what I've heard about the Garden of Eden. And this 
land looks just like Egypt. Egypt. That is where Lot's heart was at this point. His heart wasn't with the Lord. His heart was down in Egypt where he acquired all this stuff, all these possessions, all this wealth. And so he surveys the region and he sees a place where there's a lot of water, where water is just abundant. And he thinks, well, I can not only bring my herds and flocks there, but my herds and my flocks will grow there. So not only can I bring my prosperity there, not only can I, can I camp out over there where my prosperity will, will fit, but my prosperity will grow there. He looks at it and he says, that land over there, that's easy street. It looks like a bed of roses with his name all over it as far as he's concerned. And so he makes his choice. He looks up and sees a place to prosper. And here's the principle behind that. The eyes will only see what the heart loves and longs for. The eyes will see what the heart loves and longs for. And Lot loves wealth. Lot loves prosperity. He loves his stuff. And the reality, that your, the reality is that your outlook influences the outcome. And Lot's outlook is that this land looks like a perfect place for him to prosper. The author of Hebrews tells us that Abram's eyes were set on the city of God. But Lot's eyes, Lot's eyes are set on a place where he can prosper. A place that includes Sodom. A place that is overrun with wickedness. And Moses is sure to tell us here in verse 13, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. It's not that these people were going to become bad. It's that these people were some bad, wicked, evil guys. But they live in a prosperous land. And so Lot thinks, perfect, I'll go. He makes the same mistake that you see people make time and time again. He makes a decision that's going to affect the rest of his life without taking a moment to pray about it. He doesn't take a moment to consult God's will. He doesn't take a moment to to ask God for help. He doesn't try to to work things out with Abram and just make make their situation work. No, he just goes ahead and he makes this decision on his own. He takes matters into his own hands, and he does it with the unchallenged assumption that if it makes you happy, it's got to be good. If it gives you a sense of joy, if it gives you a sense of pleasure, if it gives you what you want, it's got to be good. No. That is not the way that it works. Lot fails to consider the consequences of moving himself and his family into the Jordan Valley, into Sodom. First he looks toward Sodom. Then he longs for Sodom. Oh, this sounds like something from the garden, doesn't it? He looks at Sodom. He longs for Sodom. He moves near Sodom. And the next thing you know, he's going to be living in Sodom. In fact, not only is he going to be living in Sodom, he's going to be a city representative. He's going to be an official of the city. And moving to Sodom is going to be costly. He's not going to prosper there. He thinks he's going to gain everything. He's going to lose everything. He's going to to escape with his life, but it's going to cost him his wife. He'll escape with his two daughters. Barely escape God's wrath with his two daughters. But they'll be hiding out in a cave eventually where his daughters will get him just stupid drunk and commit incest with him. And the result is going to be that his offspring through his daughters will ultimately become the Moabites and the Ammonites. And those are two people groups that absolutely hated God. These are two people groups that hated God, not only hated God, but hated His people. And so this one choice, this one choice that looks so good on the surface is going to be so costly. It's going to have eternal consequences. 
negative consequences, not good consequences. Selfish choices so easily lead to absolutely disastrous consequences. If your eyes are fixed on worldly pleasure, carnal pleasure, things that feel good in your, in your flesh, things that make you happy in your flesh, rather than on heavenly treasure, it's only a matter of time before there will be adverse consequences. Maybe you'll make it through life without consequences, but you will have to stand before God. Even choices that seem good, even choices that maybe in the moment seem completely insignificant, like there won't be any consequences, there won't be any repercussions, even all of these things can have eternal consequences. And so this is, this is a reminder for us to examine ourselves. This is a reminder for us to, to look in our own hearts and, and ask yourself, what do you treasure above everything? What do you love more than everything? What drives your decision-making process? What does your decision-making process look like? How does this impact Abram? How does this impact his, his life, his situation? Let's look at verses 14 to 18. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. So Lot makes his choice. He chooses the Jordan Valley. He chooses to go toward Sodom. And Abram's left all alone for the first time on this journey. Well, him and his wife. And God speaks audibly to him. He doesn't show up necessarily this time. It doesn't say he shows up. It doesn't say that God appears to him. But God speaks to him. And he says, here's the promise. Do you remember the promise? He, he, he reaffirms his promise to Abram. And he promises this time that not only will Abram's offspring possess this land, but that Abram and his offspring will possess this land. And that his offspring would be so incredibly vast. His offspring would be so numerous, nobody would be able to count them. It, 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 he says, it, it's like the dust. If somebody can count the dust, they can count your offspring. Now, we all recognize that nobody could possibly count all the dust particles in the world. Not even our best computer systems, I, I, I don't think, could do it. Because dust, it, it, the world makes more dust. We get rocks, we get more dust, Right? You can't count all the dust in the world, and that's what Abram's offspring is going to look like. And when you get to Genesis chapter 15, God is going to reaffirm this promise. He's going to reword this promise. He's going to illustrate it not with the dust, but with the stars in the sky. He's going to say, just like the, the, the stars in the sky are so vast, so innumerable, that's what your offspring is going to look like. And so for Abram, whether he looks down at the dust or whether he looks up at the night sky, he's going to be reminded of God's promises. He's going to be reminded of God's faithfulness. Abram not only lifts up his eyes and sees the land that God is giving him, but he lifts up his feet. He not only processes it, internally, but he also acts on God's promise. He lifts up his feet and he walks the length and the breadth of the land, which in that culture would have been the way that you lay claim to the land. This is the way that you possess it. You walk around the border of it. And so Abram not only lifts up his eyes, he lifts up his feet, but not just that, he also lifts up his heart. He lifts up his heart. He builds an altar to the Lord and he worships. An act which represents him laying himself before God. Putting himself completely at God's disposal. 
Friends, it is possible to make decisions that result in great gain. But it is foolish to forfeit what is eternal. To have just a fleeting moment of pleasure. Why would you pass on what is eternal for the sake of gaining something that is temporary? There's more to life than carnal pleasure. There's more to life than material wealth. There is more to life than material gain. There is more to life than anything under the sun. The problem with prosperity is that it's never enough. The problem with carnal pleasure is that it's never enough. It'll never satisfy you the way that you think it's going to. It always lies to you. Every commercial that promises you a more satisfying life is a lie. Every thought that thinks if I do this, I'll be happier. If I disobey God in this way, I'll be happier. It is a lie. It's leading you away from God. It's leading you away from the source of every blessing, of every good thing. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 4 says this. It says, Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from wrath. And so, Again, wealth isn't necessarily bad, but it can be, depending on what you do to it, depending on what it does to you, depending on whether or not you put your faith in your stuff. Because the tendency that people who love their stuff face is the tendency to think, well, I'm just going to take my stuff and I'm going to build a barricade between me and God and These things will protect me. Oh no, they won't. One day you will stand before God in judgment and all the things that you have owned in this life, all the things that you have treasured, all the things that you have loved in this life will be taken away from you and you will stand before the Lord in judgment. The only thing that you can possibly bring with you is worth more than all the riches in the world. Because all the riches in the world will not save you on that day. But there's one thing that can. And if riches can't save you, you have to understand that whatever that is, that has to be more valuable, more costly, more precious, more desirable than all the riches in the entire world. And that is righteousness. And not just your own righteousness. You need God's righteousness. You have to be as righteous as God to stand in His presence. And if you realize as you hear this, if you despair as you hear this because you realize that on your own merit, you are bankrupt as far as godly righteousness is concerned, you're in a good place. That's a good thing to realize. Because you realize that you have disobeyed God. You realize that you have no godly righteousness of your own. And so you are ready to be humble before God. You are ready to beg for crumbs of righteousness from the one place that it can be found. At the cross. At the cross. Where Jesus took the sins of His people upon Himself. And in exchange, He clothed them in robes of His own righteousness. You will not find crumbs of righteousness at the cross. You will find God's own righteousness imputed to you by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The gift of God's own righteousness is the only thing that will save you on that day. And so the gift of God's own righteousness is worth more than all the riches in the world. And yet, it is freely given by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Say that with me. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's where you find the righteousness of God imputed to you. So treasure it. Treasure the righteousness of God through Christ Jesus more than you treasure, more than you desire, more than you love anything else under the sun. Seek His will in His Word and live in confident assurance that if you have Christ, 
If you have Christ, you not only have Christ, you have Christ's promises. And if you have Christ's promises, you have something worth more than all the riches in the world. You have something that will provide for everything that you need. You have something that will not give you momentary, temporal joy. You have something that will give you eternal joy. So choose this day whom you will serve. Choose this day what you're going to treasure. Choose this day what you're going to pursue. Choose this day what you're going to live for. Choose this day which God you will serve. Because you can't serve God and money. Make your choice and choose wisely. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You that the righteousness of Christ is freely given through Your grace. Thank You, Lord, that though there is nothing that we can do to earn it, though there is nothing that we can do to to deserve it, You give it freely. You give it freely to those who will come to the cross and repent and believe in Your Son. And so, God, we pray that You would teach us to value what matters most. Teach us to value things, to perceive things with an eternal perspective, with the understanding that there is nothing more valuable than the riches that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. So teach us, Lord, to live for His glory. In His name we pray. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper